Welcome to Psyched, a podcast about psychiatry that covers everything from the foundational to the cutting edge, from the popular to the weird. Thanks for tuning in. This is David Carrion. This is Jesse Gold. And this is Psyched, a psychiatry podcast. Today we have Dr. Charles Nemiroff, the Leonard M. Miller Professor and Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Miami. He was born in New York City and graduated from City College of New York in 1970. He earned his Ph.D. in neurobiology and his M.D. from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Nemiroff has received numerous honors during his career, including the Distinguished Manager Prize from the American College of Physicians and the Research Award from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. He's published more than 1,100 research reports and reviews. Dr. Nemiroff, thank you for joining us on the show. It's a real pleasure to be here with both of you. Thank you. So uh, we've done uh, an incredible body of work here, and uh, we have a, uh, we'd like to start the conversation off about, um, about depression. And for our audience that does have a pretty broad range, would you, what, what is depression? What, what is its essence? What does it look like? So depression is a syndrome, a collection of symptoms like any disease, and it, it happens to be a very common disorder, so that about 11% of men and about 21% of women in their lifetime will suffer with what we call major depression. And the constellation of symptoms, of which you have to have five of nine in the DSM-5 criteria, include such symptoms as a sleep disturbance, difficulty falling asleep, having trouble staying asleep, waking up too early, although a small percentage of patients oversleep, uh, a very clear decrease in appetite, most people a decrease with body weight loss, some small number an increase, a difficulty concentrating, thinking, making decisions. Obviously, the symptom we worry about the most, which is suicide. Suicide is the tenth leading cause of death in the United States. It's the only one of the top ten causes of death that are increasing in number. All the others, including stroke, cancer, heart disease, are decreasing in number. Um, and we can talk about that if you'd like. But depression is this terrible syndrome. Its cornerstone is the inability to experience pleasure. So if you think about the worst day of your life, loss of a loved one, um, lost your job, breakup of a relationship, think about feeling that way every day and not knowing why. And there's a feeling of hopelessness and helplessness associated with depression that, of course, then leads to suicidal thinking. So it's a pretty devastating uh, condition and something that um, both of uh, both Jesse and I have uh, seen plenty of patients with. Um, the the I guess from your perspective as a uh, somebody who's done a lot of research in biological psychiatry, um, what does depression look like in the brain from your perspective? Well, before I answer that, let me just interject a couple of other things about depression for the audience first. Um, one of the really important facts to know is that depression is a systemic illness. It affects the whole body. And part of having depression is being very vulnerable for other medical disorders, hmm. including diabetes, heart disease, certain forms of cancer, stroke. So depression is a killing disease. Not only does it kill you by suicide, 
it kills you because your life expectancy is shorter because of the biology of the illness. And what I mean by that is the biology of depression is not just in the brain, it's in the whole body. Hmm. No, and that's, I think that's a, an important thing to, to emphasize. We, we always think of, I mean, certainly on uh, some popular levels, oh, it's, it's all in your head, just snap out of it. Um, but you're saying that it's something much more than that. It's not even just in your brain. It's, it's a, a widespread uh, disorder across the body. Well, first, even if it was just in your brain, you couldn't just snap out of it. We don't generally tell patients with epilepsy, they ought to, you know, you just ought to stop having seizures, right? Right. And so this notion that you could snap out of it um, is just, you know, one of the cardinal features of depression is incredible fatigue. And um, I'm always wondering when people say to severely depressed patients, you need exercise. Well, yeah, it's hard enough to exercise when you're not depressed, right? But if you're morbidly depressed, if you have a Hamilton score of 35, uh, and you're not sleeping, and you can't concentrate, and nothing feels good, you think you're going to go out and run? No. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, the notion that you can just get over it, um, um, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And so what are some of the, the key things? I mean, I think we, we don't talk as much about the uh, increased uh, risks of dying with depression. We, we talk a lot about suicide, at least in, in psychiatry. We don't talk a lot about some of these other things. I mean, they're things that the primary care has to deal with. Um, what um, Do you think that that's been a perspective that's been... Uh, how do you think we got into that way of thinking? So for many years, <clears throat> I, I conducted research on trying to understand why depressed patients were at risk for heart disease, myocardial infarction, and stroke. And it took almost 20 years of negotiating with the American Heart Association before they were willing to actually list depression as a risk factor for heart disease on their website. 20 years. And the conversation, um, I wish I had recorded the conversations with the leadership of American cardiology because one of the issues that came up is we were almost there like 15 years ago and the then president of the AHA, who will remain nameless, said to me, well, you know, actually the reason we can't list it as a risk factor is because you have not demonstrated yet that if you effectively treat depression, then you can actually obviate the risk. And I said, wait a minute, you have genetic risk factors on your website. (laughs) We haven't shown that you can modify genetic risk factors and therefore change risk. And that was sort of the end of the conversation. But in the end, long after I was president of the American College of Psychiatrists, um, in the end, uh, we managed to get this um, uh, listed as a risk factor. But there is a, a general bias about the notion that psychiatric disorders are biological illnesses and that they have uh, alterations in the body as well as in the brain. Would you say that the risk factor is just physiologic, like I have depression, I'm tired, I'm not exercising, or is there, is there actually something going on in the body and the brain because of depression that's leading to... No, there's no question about it. So many years ago when you were in elementary school, <laughs> we published a report showing that drug-free depressed patients have a clotting diathesis. They have a fundamental abnormality in the platelet clotting cascade 
um, in several steps in the cascade, in the initial platelet activation phase, um, <clears throat> but also in the final clot formation stage, so that depressed patients simply um, have a diathesis for forming clots. They're much more likely to um, form a thrombus um, than non-depressed patients. That's one abnormality. There are five or six others in terms of, of oxidative mechanisms. Um, uh, and then the big factor right now, which we and others have spent um, now several years focusing on, is the fact that a very sizable percent of depressed patients exhibit marked increases in markers of inflammation. And inflammation is involved in the pathophysiology of all of the diseases we talked about, right? Diabetes, stroke, heart attacks. And there have been many meta-analyses done um, that have looked at this already. But the fact of the matter is depressed patients have markedly abnormal inflammatory markers, C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor, not all, but clearly a sizable percent. And at a level that somebody who might not understand all of those markers would understand what does inflammation, like how does inflammation work for depression? Well, so the, the American Heart Association has a cutoff of three for C-reactive protein as a risk for myocardial infarction. A substantial percent of depressed patients have levels of three and above. That makes sense. Very clear. Yeah. Now, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of popular conceptions and a lot of popular misconceptions about inflammation and anti-inflammatory foods or anti-inflammatory dietary supplements or things like that. What is inflammation at its, at its core level and uh, why might the body be doing this in, in, in depression? What's, what, is its, what is its purpose or intended uh, outcome? So we have to remember that inflammation is a evolutionary, an evolutionarily important adaptation. It's there because it fights bacterial and viral invaders. It's there in, in fighting against certain kinds of cancer. And so the immune system is an extraordinarily important component uh, 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 evolutionarily um, and is probably partly responsible for the increased survival of, of our species. We also know there are a number of inflammatory diseases, um, and the classic ones are sarcoid, Sjogren's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Crohn's and, uh, Crohn's and colitis. We know that these diseases are, in fact, diseases of inflammation. We also know that Alzheimer's disease, stroke, heart disease, certain forms of cancer are, are unfortunately accompanied by increases in inflammation. And so <clears throat> we were the first group to report in the 90s that depressed patients and depressed patients with cancer should increase inflammatory markers. Hmm. And this has now been confirmed time and time and time again. Why this is the case is a great question. I wish I could answer that. But any more than I can answer why inflammations involved in the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease or epilepsy or stroke or diabetes. So we really don't know why uh, some patients um, uh, and some diseases are affected with it or not. What we do know is that patients with inflammatory diseases have high rates of depression, and people with 
uh, depression have high rates of inflammation. And if you give somebody a treatment to increase their inflammatory response, for example, treating someone with malignant melanoma with interferon in order to create an inflammatory response to fight the, the, the cancer, um, it, one of the major side effects is robust and severe depression in a sizable subset of patients. So there is this link. I bet originally when that was determined, people just said that was a drug side effect or something like that, instead of saying what, like thinking more about the mechanism. It was first noted, it was really interesting, David Rubineau, who's the chair of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina, was in charge of consult psychiatry at the National Cancer Institute. And when they started using interferon for treating certain cancers, he started getting called to come to the clinical center to see these patients who suddenly became severely depressed and suicidal. I was in a meeting in Luxembourg, of all places, or in Germany, right proximal to Luxembourg, and there were two suicides of patients given interferon for the treatment of cancer there on the same day, and it made it to the front page wow. of the paper. And, and I looked at it, and I thought, what is going on here? And that led to our New England Journal of Medicine article on characterizing depression associated with inflammation um, that was produced by interferon, and then learned that we could pretreat patients with SSRIs two weeks, beginning two weeks before the interferon, and ameliorate the depression. Hmm. Now, does that... It does uh, do SSRIs affect the inflammatory state of the body in non-interfering patients? So this is a great question um, uh, of which there's very little data. Um, so that, you know, SSRIs have multiple effects, one of which is to inhibit platelet aggregation and coagulation. And we've always wanted to do a study giving incredibly low doses of SSRIs like maybe a milligram of s to see if it would work better than aspirin in preventing um, hmm. um, uh, myocardial infarction in the general population because hmm. it wouldn't have much of a side effect, sort of a Framingham-like study. We could never find anybody that was willing to fund such a study. But it also begs the issue that you asked me that I sort of avoided earlier, which is what about... Um, many of the lay public who believe in anti-inflammatory agents, natural foods, uh, uh, fish oil, um, et cetera, and are they effective? And it begs the question of whether anti-inflammatories are effective antidepressants, right? Yeah. And so first, you know, I'm completely agnostic as far as treatments. Um, I'm just insistent on science. Mm -hmm. So... I'm willing to test any hypothesis that sounds reasonable, whether it's an integrative medicine approach, um, a psychotherapy, pharmacotherapy, food, diet, exercise. As long as it's a well-powered study and we can get the answer to the question. And remember that the, the plural of anecdote is not data. So that just because you treated a patient with some regimen and they got better doesn't mean that this is a controlled study or even a case series, right? Sure. So um, I'm open-minded about this, and, you know, I'd, I'd love to see more studies in this area. We're embarking on a, a very novel approach, um, which I could tell you about if you'd like, sure. yeah. in this area, and that has to do with the following. 
there have been a few studies of, of anti-inflammatory agents that were very targeted, and in particular, tumor necrosis factor inhibitors. So a reasonable hypothesis because tumor necrosis factor is one of the inflammatory markers that has repeatedly been shown to be abnormal in depressed patients. And there are a few tumor necrosis factor antagonists that are on the market approved for other drugs, other indications, I mean, namely rheumatoid arthritis, for example. So there was, uh, and, and treatment-resistant psoriasis. So there was a study done by Ranga Krishnan at Duke many years ago, and Teracept is a drug that's used to treat psoriasis. It's a tumor necrosis factor monoclonal antibody, and he infused it to uh, patients with psoriasis and depression who had failed um, antibiotic therapy. In a placebo-controlled study, he found that it had antidepressant properties. It's pretty exciting. There was a second study done by Andy Miller, Chuck Raison, and their colleagues at Emory, in which they looked at a different TNF-alpha antagonist called infliximab. And interestingly, in the patients with elevated CRP levels, indicative of inflammation, the drug did have antidepressant properties. So my approach has been that because multiple inflammatory markers have been shown to be abnormal in depression, I was looking for a more pan-inhibition kind of, of, of um, strategy, one that would quiet inflammation down in a broader way, because I was concerned if you block TNF-alpha, well, what about IL-6, what about CRP, what about the other inflammatory markers? And so, as you probably know, there is a huge burgeoning database on the use of stem cell therapy for the, in regenerative medicine, that you can give intravenous infusions of mesenchymal stem cells derived from bone marrow, and these cells travel to sites of inflammation where they quiet down inflammation locally. So at Miami, our stem cell institute director, Josh Hare, has done this post-MI. Uh, he's done it in congestive heart failure. He's done it in frail elderly. He's done it in COPD. He's done it in um, arthritis. And you infuse these cells, and they literally go to the hot spots, your knee, your chest. <laughs> and we've done a study in frail elderly. And in the study in frail elderly, we saw a six-month reduction in tumor necrosis factor levels after a single infusion of 200 million mesenchymal stem cells, no side effects of the treatment at all, and an increase in a sort of crude measure of well-being. They weren't depressed, and an increase in their capacity in terms of frailty. So the Stanley Foundation has just agreed to fund a pilot study for us looking at treatment-resistant depression, um, uh, looking at um, uh, these patients who are treatment-resistant to, say, SSRIs and have elevated uh, inflammatory markers. So we're going to do that. And I have an NIH application in to look at a very unique uh, population of patients who ought to have robust inflammation, which are patients with comorbid alcohol abuse and depression. Because both alcohol abuse and depression are associated with robust increases in inflammation. So I'm pretty excited about this. That's a a fascinating approach. Uh, And and just to kind of uh, think about this more concretely, where where do you expect, hope, predict 
imagine them to go. I mean, if, you, if I've got an aching knee, it's going to go to my knee. Uh, is, is What is inflamed? Where? So, um, first of all, we know that peripheral inflammation increases depressive symptoms, both from the interference studies I've told you, but then um, from a variety of other studies that have been done by Janet Kikos Glazer at um, Ohio State. She's shown that that artificially increasing inflammation by giving, say, LPS, you know, lipopolysaccharide, um, to college students causes a robust inflammatory response, and their mood plummets. Um, stress can do it as well. So I think by blocking um, inflammation peripherally, we should, in fact, see uh, a bona fide improvement in depressive symptoms, particularly the cardinal vegetative symptoms, you know, think about what you feel like when you have the flu. You know, you're at home, you feel terrible, but you're not working, but you can't concentrate, you can't read, you can't watch TV, you're lethargic, you're listless. That's sort of part of the depressive syndrome. So there may be some cardinal symptoms of depression that respond to this kind of treatment. A big issue, um, uh, which was cloaked in your question, is, is there a direct effect on the brain? And so there's a huge amount of controversy about this. There's an investigator at the University of Virginia named Daniel Kipnis that this year for the first time discovered a direct link between the periphery and the brain as far as the immune system, which had hitherto not been understood. So it looks like there is a, a tremendous amount of, of communication uh, between the periphery and the brain and the immune system. Secondly, you'll remember from your basic um, uh, neuroanatomy, I know you remember this, that there are seven circumventricular organs in the brain that have leaky blood-brain barrier uh, passages that do not have tight junctions separating the brain from the per uh, periphery. And they are, just to remind you from the Latin, they are the median eminence, the subfornical organ, the area postrema, which controls vomiting, for example. That's why you vomit when, when something in the periphery um, um, uh, um, is upsetting you. This, the area, uh, uh, the uh, organ laminosum, the lamina terminalis. I know you'd like that. Thank you. So <laughs> these areas uh, allow immune cells to enter. And then lastly, the brain has its own immune system, which is uh, the equivalent of macrophages in the brain or microglial cells, and they also make inflammatory markers. And do you envision that, like, I'm working in a hospital, someone comes in with depression, I would be looking at their inflammatory markers to decide treatment in the future? So first, um, because a third of your patients don't have another doctor, you should be doing it anyway because our patients are at risk for heart disease and stroke. I get CRPs on all my patients just to make sure, and you'd be stunned at how many of them are in the risk range and don't know it. Um, but yes, I think this will end up being sort of part of personalized medicine in psychiatry. I think, you know, in psychiatry we had this notion that monotherapy was good. And then when the treatment studies like STAR-D came out, we discovered that you know only 28% of patients treated with citalopram actually got into remission. So um, that's not a good number. Mm -hmm. And you know if you uh, go to an oncology clinic, nobody's on monotherapy, right? 
Everybody's on triple drug chemotherapy, radiotherapy, whatever. And so why would the brain, as complicated an organ as it is, with a syndrome like depression that affects certainly different brain areas, circuits, neurotransmitter systems, why would we think that one antidepressant would bring people into remission? So I think we're going to see patients um, show up. You're going to evaluate them. Um, you're going to end up getting inflammatory markers. Maybe one of these anti-inflammatory treatments will be part of the depression uh, regimen. Um, we'll find out better whether psychotherapy affects uh, inflammation. It's not out of, the, out of the bound of reason that maybe effective CBT maybe helps patients um, uh, reduce their inflammatory markers. These are all active and important avenues of investigation. Mm-hmm.